Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the word of God. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, you have given the gift of Jesus, who is the light of the world. And Lord, not just the light of the world, but the light who shines in our own darkness to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning that if any friends here are walking in darkness or flirting with darkness or entrapped by the darkness, Jesus, by your spirit and your word, you would shine your light even into those places. And for those of us who have seen you by your grace, that you would strengthen us, encourage us. And as a church, Lord, that your light would shine through us to be that city on the hill, to shine your light of the gospel, both in this room, in Flagstaff, and beyond. So to that end, Lord Jesus, would you, would you move in us and through us according to your ways? Would you let the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight? O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, we have a long and involved passage this morning, um, as you would expect with the Gospel of John, such long chapters, such long episodes of looking at Jesus interacting with others. But before we jump into the text and I show you the outline, I, I, we will see that the words of Jesus this morning beg some questions that each and every one of us must take an honest assessment of ourselves and where we're at. What do I mean? Well, here's a question, and perhaps you've asked yourself this before. How do you know you are genuinely a Christian? How do you know you are genuinely a Christian? How, how do you know that you are a follower of Jesus? How do you assess that? Or maybe for some of you, maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, but but you're considering that, and, and so Jesus um, implies a question to us this morning. If you're not a Christian, why should you be a Christian? Are there consequences for becoming a Christian? And are there consequences for not being a Christian? For those of you who might be considering Jesus, the, why should you cast the entirety of your life at Jesus' feet and dedicate your life to following him? So those fundamental questions and more are answered by Jesus in John chapter 8. Now, if you look down at the Bible in your lap and you look at verse 12 and you, you uh, look, scroll down with your eyes to verse 59, you can see that um, there's a lot of text here for us to look at. John 8 is complex. It's as if Jesus is having four or five different conversations on four or five interrelated topics at once. And, and in my mind, it's like thickly braided hair, this conversation is. There's, there's one strand woven with the other strand, and it makes this tight braid. And, and so there's four main strands that we're going to look at this morning of what Jesus is talking about. And because the topics are woven together, as you're reading, it can be a bit difficult to 
to keep track of these four different strands or themes or topics. And so our approach this morning is to take one strand at a time, pick it up beginning somewhere around verse 12, and trace it down through 59, and then come back again and again and again. That's how we're approaching the passage this morning. So, so as you take notes, and you should take notes, here's the outline this morning. We have four strands that we're going to look at. Here they are. Strand number one is this question. Who is your father? There is a conflict of paternity in the text, and you'll see what that is as Jesus has conflict with the religious leaders. And the chief section we'll look at is verses 37 to 46, but really it's woven throughout the whole passage. And then we will turn to strand two, moving from who is your father to asking the question, whose word do you believe? And then from there we'll go into strand three and asking this question, are you set free? And then the last question that's going to be set before us is, who do you say Jesus is? Now, these are all questions that as we have, of observers looking at the text of Scripture see Jesus implicitly asking his followers and the religious leaders and those who are combating him. We see these questions implicitly in the text, but the goal this morning by the Spirit is not to keep these at arm length and just be a mere observer. Jesus' Jesus's questions to these individuals are ultimately questions to you. And so you ought not to leave this morning without answering these questions yourself. Who is your father? Whose word do you believe? Are you set free? And who do you say Jesus is? So as we look at the text of Scripture, it should be intensely personal this morning. And so as I said, we're going to pick up strand one now, and we're going to walk through passages unfolding in John 8, and I'll make comments and go to the next passage and make comments, and on we'll go. So strand number one, who is your father? Join me in verses 18 and 19. Jesus is speaking, and he says in verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they, that's the religious leaders in verse 19, said to Jesus, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. For if you knew me, you would know my Father also. Now if you just pause there and think back to what we've seen in the Gospel of John together, there's increasing conflict in this Gospel between Jesus and the religious leaders. And the conflict increasingly is Jesus' repeated claim that the Almighty God of heaven is Jesus' very Father. And we saw back in 5.18 that what so frustrated and enraged the religious leaders is for Jesus to claim that the Almighty, everlasting God was his Father is that Jesus was making himself equal with God. That's 
the conflict of the text that's continuing now where they say to him in verse 19, where's your father? And then Jesus' shocking words to them, you don't know me and you don't know my father because if you knew me, you would know my father. And think about who he's talking to. He is talking to the very people, the, the, the pinnacle of this religious Jewish society, the very people who were supposed to know God best and lead the people in knowing God and knowing his word, Jesus is saying to them, you don't know him. So that begs a question, who then is the father of these religious leaders? Who is the father of these leaders who are supposed to lead Israel in worshiping the father? Well, the answer may shock you. For that, we go down to verses 37 through 41. The conflict continues in John 8. Jesus says to them, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You, verse 41, you are doing the works your father did. And they said to Jesus, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So you can see this conflict is escalating in the text. Now, the leaders claim that Father Abraham was their father. They claim that Abraham was their father, and that was a source of pride, even sinful pride, because of their biological descent from Abraham way back in Genesis 12. But if you notice in verse 37, Jesus does acknowledge. He says, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. Jesus acknowledges their biological descent, but Jesus is, is moving them towards this reality. They do not have a spiritual descent from Abraham. They're biologically descended. They're Israelites, but they're not spiritually descended. In fact, their actions and their beliefs, when Jesus said in verse 37, you're seeking to kill me because my words find no place in you, their actions and beliefs revealed that Abraham was not their father. And in verse 41, you're doing the works your father did. Jesus indicates they do have a father, and they're doing what their father does, which is ultimately to seek to kill Jesus. So this, this tension is, is mounting. I, I wonder if, if we had been there in that moment that if you could have cut the tension with a knife. Because they've already tried to assassinate Jesus a number of times. But now here Jesus is ramping up with the sword of his words, exposing to these oppressors and repressors of God's people. He's exposing to them who their true father is. And for that we go to verse 42. Jesus said to them, 
If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's will. He was a murderer from the beginning, inciting Cain to kill Abel. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he, Satan, the devil, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for, Jesus says, he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus pulls no punches and he explains the why of verse 42. Remember, verse 42 said, if God were your father, you would love me. So, so those who do love Jesus prove that the Father is in fact their Father, and those who don't love Jesus prove that they have a different Father. And the shock here of Jesus' words is to locate the paternity of these religious leaders way back to Genesis 3. Do you remember in Genesis 3? In Genesis 3, the serpent, the devil, the ancient dragon shows up. And in Genesis 3, he tricks and deceives Adam and Eve to plunge the human race into sin. And then in Genesis 3.15, God divides the human race into one of two families. The seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman. And that becomes the plot line for the rest of the Bible. And the promise is that there will be an, a conflict and it's not biological seed, it's a spiritual seed, spiritual descendants. And the sad and bitter irony is that these very people who were supposed to be attending to the temple or, or rather um, making sure the priests did so, leading the people and teaching the Bible and the word of God, these people who were supposed to know God best did not know God at all because they don't love Jesus. And their will, what is so shocking, is that the text says in verse 44, you're of your father of the devil, and their will, the nature, the heart orientation of the religious leaders was to do the will of their father, to do his desires, and that was murder and lies. So think about what Jesus is teaching. Satan is a murderer. He uses his words to accomplish the death of others. And Satan has no truth in him. And that Satan's character only produces lies and deception, and he is, in fact, the father of lies. So unlike God the Father, God is infinite, and he is the creator. Satan is created, and he is finite, Unlike God the Father who is infinite in the perfections of his beauty, infinite in the perfections of his holiness, 
the father who is inexhaustibly wise, the father who is inexhaustibly caring and just and good, Satan is powerful but finite and is so sinister that he is a fool in the ways that he acts in rebellion against God. And Satan is so sinister that he even uses the Bible to tell lies. The devil is a malevolent being on God's leash, so to speak. If you have any notion of some kind of Eastern yin-yang, equal powers, light and dark versus each other, that's not what the Bible teaches. Satan is an ant who will be crushed forever by Christ. But now there is a leash that is long, and in God's ways, Satan works. Read the beginning of Job to get a glimpse into that. But here at this text, look at what Jesus is doing. He's looking at these people in their eyes. He's looking at these religious leaders, and he's, he is exposing their own hearts to them, namely the deadness of their hearts and their responses not to repent, but to want to kill Jesus all the more. As we'll see at the end, they're going to pick up rocks and Jesus will slip away. The sad thing is that these religious leaders, here's what's so sobering, one of the many sobering things, is that these men likely knew the Bible better than us, meaning that they had the whole thing memorized, literally. So their minds were the digital computer that had the whole thing memorized and they could recall the text of Scripture. So they knew the Bible better in that capacity than any of us, and yet they did not know the Bible at all. So they had all of Deuteronomy memorized, and it was of no help to them other than to reinforce their own self-righteousness and self-deception. They memorized the Bible with their minds, but their hard and impenetrable hearts would not let the truth of God's word in, and it fell by the wayside. And those are the ways of Satan. Their hearts were calloused, Scripture talks about. Their hearts were dead, Scripture talks about. Their hearts were stony or like a rock, as Scripture refers. And this is why when Jesus says he's the light of the world, there's this beautiful connection to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6, is going to take this idea of Jesus being the light of the world and how Satan deceives and the hardness of hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning of verse 3. Paul reflects by saying, Even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, namely Satan, lowercase g, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Pause there. Paul says that the operation and work of Satan in the world is to blind the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who's the image of God. So what needs to happen? 
because Satan is not all-powerful. God is. So then how does conversion work with Jesus' word saying, I'm the light of the world? Well, Paul finishes in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4. Here's what he says. For God, who said, let there be light, or let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1. For God, who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so this text is a mini commentary on this long John 8 passage where Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There's an invitation by Christ. And so then what God does in 2 Corinthians is he says to our dark hearts, let there be light in the same way he did in Genesis 1 and gives us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Beautiful words. But here Jesus is, is using his words to be that light in the hearts of these religious leaders and all it does is to serve to harden their hearts more. And this is why, back to our text in John 8, down in verse 56, continuing this first strand on who is your father, in verse 56, Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So they're claiming that Abraham was their father, and this is a remarkable biblical truth on how to read your Bibles, is that what was spoken to Abraham was ultimately spoken to Christ, and Jesus is the fulfillment of those words. But here Jesus, with deep irony, is saying, you're claiming Abraham was your father. Well, your father rejoiced that he would see my day, the incarnation of God the Son. And he saw my day and was glad. You see, Abraham knew the gospel of the Redeemer was unfolding and coming because the gospel was first promised in Genesis 3.15. And so now it's given to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, 17, and 22. Read Genesis. And Abraham knew the gospel was coming. Abraham looked forward, but not the religious leaders. The very ones in the place to lead God's people followed their father, the devil, and so the implication is the crowds are standing around listening to this verbal duel with Jesus and the religious leaders. And the crowds are supposed to ask themselves, who is my father? If these religious people who I'm supposed to be like and their father is actually Satan. And Jesus says that those who love the father love Jesus. The question to each and every one of us this morning is this. Who is your father? And your father is revealed in your love or your hate towards Christ. Now, you might say, well, I don't hate Jesus, but I don't really love Jesus. On the Bible's definition, Jesus himself says, you're either for me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. And so this is the first strand to us is who is your father and now it takes us to strand number two whose word do you believe look back up again at john 8 12 let's reorient ourselves whose words do you believe let's listen to what jesus says contrasted with what the enemy says jesus says 
I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, Jesus' words here press home to his hearers an urgent question. Who do you believe? Whoever follows me, Jesus says, will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus' invitation is to walk in his light, to follow him and have the light of eternal life. But Jesus implies that those who reject him, who don't walk in his light, stay in the darkness they're already in. And friends, staying in darkness, do you know, has eternal consequences. It has eternal consequences. You see, Jesus' appeal is not merely to those on the page of Scripture, but to those of us, you and me, looking onto the pages of Scripture. What we do with verse 12 and beyond has eternal consequences. For example, look at, down at verse 23 and 24. Jesus continues this idea of light and darkness. He says to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And here, here's where the words are very sobering. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. This is the bad news of the Bible, which means we need good news. But you need to look at the bad news. Jesus could not be more clear. So especially, friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, you haven't bowed the knee and given eternal your, your allegiance to him. If you're not a Christian, understand the clarity and sobriety of what Jesus says. Unless you entrust your life to Jesus and follow him, you will die in your sins. To die in your sins is to die separated from God. It is to die guilty and condemned and await eternal judgment. We already saw that in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, we said, Who does, whoever does not believe is condemned already. And so what we need, and dear friend, what you need, is you need to have your guilt removed, and you can't take it from yourself. You need the stains of your sins washed over, and you can't wash that away by yourself. You cannot remove your own condemnation. And like a freight train coming towards us, there is eternal judgment coming. And the issue of sin, the issue of sin that Jesus presents on these pages, if you die in your sin, is not only, it's not only a foreboding future reality in the lake of fire of eternal punishment, the presence of sin has present consequences. Look down at verses 33 as we look at this strand here. 
In verses 33 and 34, look at what more Jesus says about dying in your sins. They answered, Jesus, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? In verse 34, listen to what Jesus says about sin. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So the consequences of sin in 24 is unless you believe, unless you believe that I am, Jesus says, you will die in your sin. And then here in 34, Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now we're Americans. No one masters us. We defy tyranny. And then we think that we are the masters of our own fate and the captain of our own lives, don't we? But you know, Jesus doesn't believe that. And Jesus says here, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Friend, it very may well be that you think that you are in complete control of your life this morning. You've walked in and you think that maybe you don't need Jesus. But not only are there eternal consequences, there are present consequences. Jesus says, whether you agree or not, you must agree that he says it. Jesus says, whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus. He's not saying that sometimes you can be a slave to sin and sometimes you can not. Sometimes you can free yourself from sin and sometimes you can't. Remember the first point of this passage. Remember strand number one? Who is your father? Those outside of Christ, Jesus is saying, your father is the evil one and your will is to do his will. Not just the religious leaders. This is the bad news that Jesus came to make us aware of so that he could give us this good news. But the good news is not just yet. We'll get there. Sin is enslaving. And practicing sin only leads to more sin. And at its most fundamental level, how do you define sin? It's whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's, that's Romans 14, 23. Meaning that anything that you don't do from a robust trust in Jesus is sin. Right? So the um, sell all that you have cure the vaccine, solve all the, or cure the vaccine. So, I'll just let that sit there for a moment in the air. Some of you might think the vaccine needs to get cured. Some of you think that COVID needs to get cured. If you could solve all the problems of this world, if you could eradicate all problems and solve all racial issues and poverty, if you could do all the things that are tearing the world apart and you do the goodest good, so to speak, and you don't have faith, it would all be sin and condemn you to hell. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Or as Romans 3.23 said, it's failing to glorify God. And so Jesus, Jesus came to give and provide and to extend and to earn and to dispense eternal freedom. Eternal freedom from the guilt of sin and the power of sin. 
the guilt of sin and the power of sin. And Jesus is looking at these people saying, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. There is only one person who can cut off those shackles, and his name is Jesus. And so sin blinds to its enslaving ways. Sin wants us to think that sin is beautiful and tastes good and is helpful and right. Sin wants us to think that it's, it's good, but it infects us to embrace its enslaving ways. Look down at verse 42. Jesus continues. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Verse 43. Listen to this interrogative question. He's not asking them for an answer. He's being rhetorical. Listen to what Jesus says. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. That's the effects of sin in verse 43. He's not saying, why do you not understand what I say? Jesus is saying, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you can't bear to hear my word. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and you're willing to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Verse 45, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Jesus offers them eternal life and they want to kill him for it. And we see that unless you believe you die in your sins. And then he took it down and he said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And here in this passage, this latter section, in these, he is explaining the reason they don't hear Jesus. They hear his words. It goes into their minds, but not goes down into their hearts. They're not receiving Jesus' words with faith. The reason is they are not of God. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You see, Jesus is asking this rhetorical question meant to interrogate them. It's not an intelligence issue. It's not a comprehension issue. It's a heart issue. And the heart issue is a heart that is following the will of their father, the evil one. You see, this is the bad news. This is the bad news that Jesus came to make sure that we, each and every one of us, are aware of that unless we believe we will die in our sins with eternal consequences, and even in this life we will have the presence of sin to control us and enslave us, that's the bad news. But Jesus came to rescue us through his own sacrifice of himself for our sin, on the cross, Jesus, when he hung on the cross, took our darkness and gave us his light. He took our sin. He took your rebellion. He took our condemnation all upon himself. And then he said, let there be light into our hearts so that we could see and savor the goodness of God. 
But if you don't follow Jesus, understand from his word that your plight and your danger, the bad news, unless you repent, you will die in your sins. There's nothing that you can do to atone for your sins. There's only one who can, and his name is Jesus, and he's done it already. And so the invitation then for you is to believe and to escape his wrath in the unending lake of fire, which then leads us to the third strand. Are you set free? Who is your father? Whose word do you believe? Do you do the will of the evil one or do you listen to Jesus? And now the question is, are you set free? Once again, look at verse 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever, do you see the word? Follows. Follows. Are you set free? How do you know? How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know that you're a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? It sounds nice. I can picture it. But what does it look like on Tuesday afternoon? I am the light of the world, verse 12. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you hear the hope? Yes, Jesus is speaking stern words, but he is a stern surgeon, a physician who is going after the cancer of their sin and cutting it out and exposing it to them. And some of the religious leaders do hear and they do believe because the light does shine in their hearts by God's grace. But here the hope is cast to you. There is a light shining. This book is open. The beacon is out. Jesus is here and he's speaking to us in his word. Do you hear the hope? Turn to Christ and walk in his light for eternal life. But how? How do we know that we walk in the light? How do you know that you're a Christian? Was it because you raised a hand or walked down an aisle at one point or even was baptized and you said, well, I raised my hand once. I was baptized. I was, I did this and therefore I'm saved. Are those which you point to as the only evidence needed to show that you follow Jesus? What, what does Jesus say? Well, look down at verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. So now, in this uh, multifaceted conversation, he's turning his attention away from the religious leaders and the multitudes, and he's turning to those who believed in him. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. There it is. Do you hear it? How do you know? What Jesus tells us, he tells them, he tells us, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Re remember how sin enslaves, but abiding in Jesus' word is walking in the light and sets us free. To follow Jesus as a disciple is to abide in Jesus' word. But what does that mean? Well, if you look down to verse 51, look at what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, guards my word, heeds my word, 
treasures my word. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So to abide in Christ, because we need to figure out what, what does that mean? He said, follow, right? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And now he says it, if you abide, then you are my disciple. Well, we need to know what following means, what it means to abide. What does abide mean? Listen, to abide is not some sentimental feeling that you have at six in the morning with a cup of coffee and private devotions, though that's part of it. But what, I'm, what, what the word is going to tell us is that to abide is to obey. They are synonyms. And to obey Jesus is to abide in Jesus. It's that simple. But obedience to Jesus is never, ever, ever, and here's where you can go eternally wrong with it, obedience to Jesus is never merely external ritual or action. And obedience to Jesus is never an effort to put yourself in favor with Jesus. No, we obey Jesus because we already have been given his favor from the cross. So rather than trying to earn favor, we have his favor, which pushes us to obey. There's a world of difference between those two. That's what it is to abide. Obedience always first flows from a changed heart and a changed mind that leads to a changed life if you think of obeying as merely something you do on the outside as if jesus can't see your heart even that type of obedience is actually disobedience because obeying jesus flows from love for jesus our thinking changes to be like jesus our character changes to be like Jesus because we're in the light, and therefore our actions, our obedience becomes like Jesus. Let's peek ahead. Let me show you more details on this. If you skip ahead to John 14, I want to show you some very, very simple and significant words of Jesus in John 14. John 14, 23, and 24. There's this question before us, are you set free? How do you know that you are a follower of Jesus? Well, he says more in John 14, 20, verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me. Because just pause there. Answer in your own heart, do you love Jesus? Do you claim to love Jesus? Yes or no? Maybe. Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. There it is again. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So if anyone loves me, then he will keep my word. And if that wasn't clear, the next verse, John 14, 24, Jesus tells us the opposite. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So to disobey Jesus is to disobey the Father, 
and to disobey Jesus, to not keep Jesus' words, to not heed them, is to prove you don't love Jesus. Now skip over to John 15, 10. Jesus is speaking of how he's the true vine. And so you can see this connection, the connection between abiding and obeying. In John 15, 10, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So there they're all brought together in John 15, 10, so there's no mistake. Keeping commandments, abiding in love, are one and the same. To abide is to obey. So then coming back to John 8, are you set free? How do you know you walk in the light of Jesus? You obey Jesus' word from your heart. You obey Jesus on Jesus' terms. My friends, listen to me. Especially those of you who are younger in the faith. College students, listen to me. We follow Jesus on Jesus' terms. He is the standard. He sets the course. He is the measure of our obedience, not the way that you feel. And right now in society, at the most fundamental level of what it means to be an image bearer of God is being obliterated by what you're being indoctrinated with at your seminary, at NAU, is teaching us is the world is teaching us that everything that Scripture says regarding gender and sexuality and marriage and family and more, the world is teaching you it is wrong and even hateful. And Jesus is the rescuer who helps us see where he makes clear that we must know his commandments and embrace his ways and embrace his truth. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. John 15, 10, back to 14, 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. You cannot say, I love Jesus, and then live a life that denies the ways of Jesus. We cannot be like the Israel in the book of Judges who did what was right in their own eyes. So how do you know you walk in the light of Jesus? You obey his word from a new heart. Well, what does Jesus command? Take up and read. In fact, here's a good place to start. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And another place to start is love your neighbor as yourself. But friends, listen to me. You're being taught that love is love, but that's not biblical love. Love is always, only, and ever, and, and can never be separated from the truth of what God says. Love is what Jesus defines it to be, and that includes telling people the truth to rescue them from their sins. So when Jesus looks at these religious leaders and says, you are of your father the devil, he is actually loving them by telling them the truth. By telling them that if whoever practices sin is a slave to sin, that is loving somebody. 
Jesus is the embodiment of love, so we follow the ways of Jesus. How do you know you walk in darkness? You don't keep Jesus' words. So let me shoot straight with you. Don't call yourself a Christian if you aren't willing to submit the entirety of your life to Jesus on Jesus' terms. Now, there's the doctrine of sanctification. We are in an infinite journey of lifetime of growth into Christ-likeness. We are indoctrinated into the ways of the world, and part of growing as a Christian is putting off the old ways of thinking and putting on the ways of Christ. So dear believers, especially senior saints, meaning those of you who have been a Christian for any length of time, must exercise this love and patience with those younger in the faith who are in process of being set free by the truth of Jesus. It doesn't all happen at once. It didn't happen for you at once. So therefore, we must be patient and loving and listening and looking and helping our young friends grow and know Jesus all the more. But for those of us who love Jesus, notice that Jesus does not qualify this with how well you abide. Jesus does not tell you to achieve level 10 status of being a good obeyer. He is not telling us that we must make our obedience the locus and grounds of understanding that we are, in fact, abiding in Jesus. What do I mean? What do I mean? We can hear this and go wrong and think, I'm terrible at obeying. I'm good at sinning. I'm not good at obeying. Maybe I should question my faith. That is not what the goal of this text is. I love the phrase the Bible uses of Old Testament saints. The Old Testament lingo for somebody who followed God and looked forward to Christ was a wholehearted. Wholehearted. It wasn't sinlessness. It wasn't perfection. Think David. Think David, one of the chief sinners in the Bible, had a wholehearted allegiance and devotion to God represented by his willingness to see his sin, repent, and turn to, to God so when Jesus is saying, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, Jesus is not demanding perfectionism. Jesus is not demanding works righteousness. Jesus is appealing to wholeheartedness. That we want to want Jesus, want to follow Jesus. Abiding is a wholeheartedness that desires to grow in Christ, hungers and thirsts for righteousness, mourns personal sin, is humble and loves God and confesses sin. When we see it, that's in part what it means to abide in Jesus. Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Verse 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Do you want that? Do you want to never see eternal death and damnation? Do you want to have freedom? This is the good news. We've received the bad news, we've received the sober warnings, but Jesus gives us in his gospel, through his life, 
through his cross work, the empty tomb, and his, his raising up to the throne room of heaven, Jesus has given you freedom. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Free from the tyranny of the devil. Free from enslavement to sin. Free from condemnation. Free from eternal judgment. Free from darkness. Free from eternal death. And all to freedom to walk in the light. Freedom to follow Jesus willingly and, and, and want to follow him. Freedom to rejoice in eternal life. Freedom to enjoy Jesus' living water. Freedom to hope and resurrection. Freedom to walk in the eternal love of the Father. That, my friends, is called good news. That, dear believer, is what God in the Son has done for us by his Spirit. And friend, if you don't know Jesus, this is the alternate offer. The bad news or the good news. And the good news Jesus has before you, which do you want? Which will you choose? Which will you receive? Do you see the light? Which leads us to the final and brief strand. How is it then that Jesus has the authority to say these things? How is it that Jesus can claim this of himself? Strand number four, who do you say Jesus is? Verse 12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Do you believe that? Do you say that Jesus is the light of the world? Who is Jesus? We've already seen him as many things in the Gospel of John, but here Jesus is claiming, he's using this metaphor of how God wants you to think about God in the flesh. He wants you to think about Jesus. He's the light of the world. He is the light of truth. He's the light of life. He is the light of salvation. And listen, when Jesus says, I am, right, ego amy, he's, he's using, he's quoting uh, the, the voice of the burning bush. I am that I am. Jesus saying, I am the light. When Jesus says that, Jesus is not saying that he has light and he has life or he has truth or he has salvation. Jesus is in and of himself light, life, truth, and salvation. There is no life apart from Jesus. There is no truth apart from Jesus. There is no salvation apart from Jesus. There is nothing apart from Jesus. He is everything because he is the light. And he then gives us his life. Remember 2 Corinthians? Let there be light to shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus alone is the light of the world. There is no other. Jesus is the great I am. That's why he can say this. Because Jesus is the eternal God, voice of the burning bush in the flesh. Verse 28. So when Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, that I do nothing of my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus' cross work, his tomb breaking, reveal that he is the I am. There is more. Look at verses 56 to 59. 
closing this text. Jesus is arguing with the religious leaders once again, and he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to Jesus, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Yes, Jesus, born a man of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, but Jesus is also the eternal Son of God, second person of the Trinity. That's why he can say these things. That's why he can rescue you. Jesus, a a man in his early 30s, while also being God, the ancient of days, truly God and truly man. Jesus is the seed and offspring promised to Abraham. That's why Abraham rejoiced. And yet Jesus is the one who made that promise to Abraham. And Jesus, in fact, is the one who made Abraham. Jesus is the great I am. He is greater than Abraham. Jesus is the good news with skin on to take our sins from us, to die in our stead. It's only because Jesus is before Abraham that you can leave this place with the eternal security of knowing that this God-man and only one saves and will never let you go, has removed your sins, and has truly set you free. No one else can set you free, but because he is God in the flesh, he can. And so friends, Jesus is beckoning you, walk in the light, abide in his word. He gladly, without reservation, invites you to himself and walks alongside you in your walk with him to keep you from stumbling. Church, this is your savior. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for the grace of your Son poured out to us in the gospel. We thank you for the ministry of your Spirit, and we pray, Lord, that you would do your work in each one of our hearts to see your light, to abide in it, Lord Jesus. In whose name we pray, and everyone said, amen.